Open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah chapter 1. We begin this morning marching through this wonderful book, continuing from the book of Ezra as the final chapters in the history of the Jewish people, the people of God under the old covenant. Two times the Jews have returned from Babylon to Israel. The first time was with a man named Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was a godly man and a political leader raised up by God under the pagan king Cyrus. After Zerubbabel, 80 years later, Ezra leads a second group of people from Babylon back to Jerusalem. Somewhere around 5,000 people came with Ezra the second time, 80 years later, 150 years after Babylon conquered Israel. This is now 12 years later at the beginning of Nehemiah. Did you follow that? So we've got Babylon taking Israel in 608 BC. 70 years later, we have Zerubbabel. 80 years later, we have Ezra. 12 years later, Nehemiah chapter 1 and verse 1. This book is an ancient document. Do you remember the book of Ezra? Ezra is largely a collection of decrees from the king Cyrus. Letters from the king Ahasuerus. Decrees from the king Darius. Travel documents like lists of names from Zerubbabel and from Ezra. Much of Ezra is just ancient documents, official letters from the court or from the government. Ezra happened to have them all. He collected them and he said, I think it will be helpful if we put these into a book and we can see from that how God's people came back after they had fallen into rebellion. So the theme of the book of Ezra is restoration after rebellion. How do you come back after you've fallen into sin? And if you have backslidden, if you've fallen away from where you were spiritually, Ezra is a good guide for how to return. What would you do if previously you had been near to God, but now you look and you say, I'm not living the way I had been before. I recently spoke with a man over the New Year's holiday on the second, uh, the Monday, Monday the 2nd of January. And he said, I am not nearly at the same spiritual place that I was when I was first converted about eight years ago. So my counsel was, try reading the book of Ezra and meditating on it. Because that book was given to God's people as a record of how they recovered after backsliding. Nehemiah is similar. It builds on Ezra, but Nehemiah is not a collection of documents. In fact, if you read Nehemiah carefully, you'll see one word or one collection of words repeated all the time. Can anyone guess... Caleb, I'm going to challenge you now. Can you guess what word or collection of words, it's very common 
you all know it, what word or collection of words is repeated throughout Nehemiah? What is it? Not king. I or me or my or mine. That is, Nehemiah is a diary. It's a journal. In the book of Nehemiah, he's recording his own story. It's a biblical example of journaling. Maybe like the Psalms, where David often wrote about his own spiritual experience, Nehemiah is now writing about his own biography. Maybe you could say it's an autobiography before Augustine wrote Confessions. Nehemiah is telling you, what did I do? What happened to me? Starting in the 20th year of the king. So let me ask you now, if you collect these old documents, these parchments that Ezra gathered together, and then the journal of Nehemiah, and you put all these documents together, what would you have? You would have the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, or you would have a collection of how to recover after failure. Nehemiah builds on Ezra, and Nehemiah teaches us this, rebuilding a godly society. What is a society? Some people say they join a society that they call a stockfold. They will all deposit their money and write down and record what they deposited their money for, and then at the end of the year, they can withdraw their money. It's a society. People will sometimes refer to companies that are insurance plans for your funeral as a funeral society. A society is a collection of people with a common aim. The smallest society is the family. The next size of a society would be a local church. The next size of a society would be a town. Maybe the next size, depending on how you measure, would be a country. In each of those societies, the people are gathered together, bonded by common ideas. Maybe a common culture, or a common language, or a common collection of values. If you don't have the same values in a family, children will run away or parents will divorce. If you don't have the same values in a church, the church will split. If you don't have the same values in a town, there will be great crime or the town will split. Now, what would happen if you as a man looked at your family or your church or your town or your country and you thought to yourself, there is a problem with the value system. And I think we should change. How would you go about changing it? Answer, read the book of. So for the next few weeks, I'd like us to study the book of Nehemiah, beginning this morning. What does Nehemiah say to us? Well, chapter 1 sets the stage. Very simply, in verses 1 to 3. Glance down at verses 1 to 3. And 
you could say verses 1 to 3 could be summarized with a word that begins with a P. Or a word that begins with an H. Verse 1, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. And it came to pass in the month Kislev, 20th year, as I was in Susa the palace. Now, verses 2 and 3. What would you summarize this as? It really sets the stage for the entire book. The whole message of the book requires verses 2 and 3. 2 and 3 control the whole book. Here it is, verse 2. Hananiah, one of my brothers, came, he and other men from Judah. I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. They said to me, the remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are, number one, in great distress, great hardship. Great affliction. Number two, shame or reproach or dishonor. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down. The gates are burned with fire. There you have the problem or the hardship. You have difficulties, you have catastrophes, you have distress, you have a heavy weight, you have something's not going right. You're never going to change your family unless you say, well, there's a problem here. You're never going to look to Christ unless you say, oh, I've got a problem. You're never going to fix your alcoholism unless you say, I'm a drunk. You're never going to change something unless first there is a problem that must be changed. Nehemiah begins his journal logically. He begins like a doctor. He diagnoses the problem. Before you ever solve something, you must first look to the problem. I've got an example here. Today there is a lot of discussion about the weather. Around the world and on the internet. And now working into schools and even governments. There's a lot of discussion about one of the most boring topics that could ever be discussed. The weather. We are told that we need to make laws in the parliament to control the way you drive and the kind of products you buy, including how much meat you buy. Because, they say, the amount of vors that you eat is making the days hotter. That's literally what they say. And South Africa has in its parliament right now a bill of billions of rands that they would like to spend from your tax rands, from the rands that you spend when you go to the shop to buy tackies and when you go to the pump to get petrol. They want to take, increase that cost and then take it to the government in order to control and reduce the amount of vors that you eat 
because they say the vorse that you eat is making the days hotter. And it's such a great danger, they say some of them, that we will all die within 20 years. Everything I just said to you is being spoken by politicians in Europe, in America, and in South Africa. And South Africa wants to follow the learned people of Europe, what they call the learned people. And so they are blindly pretending to be clever by writing up bills to control the weather. As if God was elected in in Tuli House. La Tuli House. But the problem is they have a false diagnosis of the problem. Nehemiah begins with diagnosing the problem. Brothers and sisters, we will have a great difficulty in our lives if we are, number one, not aware of problems, or number two, if we diagnose them incorrectly. Nehemiah began by diagnosing the problem. He said to himself, there is an issue here. I'd like us to notice three elements of the problem that he saw. What's the first one? Look in verse 3. These people are in danger, distress, affliction, hardship. Do you see it there in verse 3? And he's getting this from multiple sources. What is the danger? It tells us there in verse 3. You tell me, what's the danger in verse 3? The walls are broken, the gates are burned. This would have been a very dangerous scenario. Because there were no police. There was no standing army. There was no one to defend your property. We have a law. Do not steal. But a law without consequences is just good advice. Don't steal. I mean, if you feel that way. But if there's not a policeman standing there with a gun, stopping the guy who says, actually, I kind of enjoy stealing. And the stuff you've got, I think would look better in my house. If there's not a policeman stopping that guy from doing his favorite activity, then do not steal just becomes a motto to put on a taxi's bumper sticker. We're going to need to have some kind of enforcement. They don't have a government, or they don't have a police or a standing army. What might you get instead of police? You might get a brick. Instead of a policeman, you might get a brick and another brick and another brick and keep putting up bricks until the bricks are so many, I just can't get at your stuff. We call that a wall. All the ancient cities had them. They would put bricks on bricks all around in a circle until I just couldn't get at your stuff. And then you can finally enjoy your silver Spoons and your silver knives without someone else breaking in and taking them. These people didn't have a wall. And we already know 
If the Jews don't have a wall, what will happen? Ezra chapter 4, we already studied this, enemies will come in. Ezra, have you ever read the Old Testament? Can you name some other people? I mean, we're talking whole groups of people, not like five bad kids. We're, we're whole countries that said, we hate those guys. Let's go take their stuff. Can you name any groups of people? I've got about 10 of them on my list, on my notes here. Moabites. Moabites, that was the last one on the list. Start with the Egyptians at the beginning. The Egyptians said, you know what? Let's just take the people's bodies. And they made them slaves. That's the ultimate stealing. If I steal your whole body, your hands and your feet and your eyes, that's the ultimate way to steal. When you have no police force, no wall, no defense, people might actually steal you. Well, they did. It happened again with the Babylonians. They stole the people themselves. That's the Egyptians. Then in Exodus 17, it was the Amalekites. The Amalekites said, we don't want to steal your body. We just want to come behind and take your camels and your donkeys and your clothes. So the Amalekites come and try to steal their stuff. Read through the history. We have the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Philistines. We have group after group that says, you know, your stuff and my stuff. I never studied logic very well. I can't tell the difference between what's yours and what's mine. In fact, what's yours, I think is mine. I'll just take it. Thieves are really bad at logic. So here the problem is they have no wall, they have no gates, which means a single criminal can come in, a crime wave can come in, or what is much more likely, an entire people group can come in and destroy them. They're weak. They don't have defense. They have to walk with weapons at all times. They have a temple, that's good, but can they safely go to their temple? They have no safety as they would call it safety. The husbands are constantly hearing their wives talk about safety. Years ago when I first came to this country, a man told me, if you want to make friends with a South African, talk to him about crime and safety. They'll immediately, you'll immediately get a connection. And over the years, if I don't know what to say to a South African, I'll say something about crime or safety. And suddenly it, a conversation starts up. That was the same way with the Jews. They were overwhelmed with difficulty. But that's the way all of us have to live our lives. David found an enemy in the king, his boss, who actually hired him. Oh, you're such a good guy. Come, come. I, I'll put you in a high position. You can marry my daughter. Son-in-law to the king? Getting paid a big salary? Oh, wait, you want to kill me and throw a spear through my heart? Before I reach 21? This is weird? No, David, you don't know what weird is. Because weird is when your son tries to kill you. You have an enemy with your own son. In fact, it's going to get even worse, David. Because you are your own worst enemy, David. Your own heart inside of you. How are you going to build a wall around that, David? There are enemies all around us and our world works 
just like we would expect it to if Genesis 1, 2, and 3 were literally true. When evolutionists say, ha, there's no evidence for creation, I ask them, have you never read the news? Bad people doing bad things in a world that has lychees. Where do the lychees come from and where do the bad people come from? Sounds just like Genesis 1, 2, and 3. It does not sound like a single-celled amoeba one day got an idea to split and become two. And then suddenly, after a wild ride, it became a fish. And then the fish one day said, you know, I got some ambitions. I got some dreams. How about I leap out of the water? <laughs> and suddenly we've got a chicken that becomes a Tyrannosaurus. And then suddenly we have monkeys that become black people. I'm just telling you what they say. And then blacks become whites because that's at the top. That's literally in their books. It's on the last page of Charles Darwin's book, The Descent of Man, which is not his popular one. It's on the last page. People don't even read the books anymore. Darwin, Darwin. He's a wicked man who hated black people. But that can't explain where lychees came from. That can't explain how bananas will tell you they have a sign even for illiterate people. Bananas literally have a sign that tell you, don't eat me yet, green. Go ahead, yellow. Stop, stop, I'm brown. I mean, it's got a sign there to tell you. And in fact, it's got wrapping to keep it safe. So several days before there's a fridge, there's actually a peel on the banana. And then an easy to open lid at the top, you just pop it open. How can the world, how can bananas be understood outside of Genesis 1, 2, and 3? And then there's guys who want to take your bananas. Where'd that come from? Why aren't we all just happy? Everybody has their own bananas. Genesis 1, 2, and 3 explains this. And you see there's a problem, and Nehemiah recognizes that there is a problem. Bad things are happening. I've got big problems. They're trying to kill us. What else makes sense except the world is working just like God says it is. How do you explain cockroaches or mosquitoes during ESCOM load shedding? It only makes sense because the world is dangerous, especially if you love God. It is unusually dangerous if you love God because the world hates what God loves. Uh, we're reading the book, The Holy War, with the uh, Tsonga churches. I hope soon we'll read it here. As soon as we finish Pilgrim's Progress, let's go right to Holy War. It's hard to get a more manful book than The Holy War. And in that book, Diabolos, the giant who takes over the town of man's soul, he comes to the people and gives them armor. And one of the pieces of armor, I'll mention two of them, one later on the sermon, one now. One of the pieces of armor he gives to them makes the people so that they hate King Shaddai's people. It's the sword that he gives them. He says, here's the sword. Go and fight the battles of Diabolos. You will fight the battles of Diabolos when you speak evil against King Shaddai or his laws 
or his people. And that's exactly what we see in Ezra, and we're going to see it in Nehemiah by the time we get to chapter 4. Notice this secondly in verse 3. The first thing is there's a physical danger. What's the second element of the problem in verse 3? It's the word after affliction or distress or danger, depending on your translation. Shame. Reproach. Because the wall is broken, they're in danger. Because they're in danger, they're in shame. Their families and women are feeling the stress. And when women feel the stress, men feel the stress. Because even though, again, our insane world wants to pretend that men and women hate each other, actually, men and women need each other desperately. And for the last 6,000 years, we've had to get along because we really, really need each other. And no man wants to live in a home with a woman hates him. And no woman wants to live in a home where the man hates her. Actually, we both want to be happy with each other. And so for thousands of years, men have pretty much tried in one way or the other, however inconsistently, to make women happy. And women have tried, however inconsistently, to make men happy. Not perfectly because of sin. And there's been too much evil in the world. And there certainly is sin. But God made the system pretty well. Basically, guys want to make girls happy and girls want to make guys happy. And so when the women feel the stress of the danger, the men feel it as well. And the enemies mock them. They know they mock them because they know they are able to mock them. What can you do about it? Where's your army? Where's your wall? You can't shut us off. It's like the neighbor, the annoying neighbor who always plays the music. What can you do? Hey, guys, can you turn that down? He cranks it up. Ah, this guy. I mean, what can I do? (laughs) You can't do anything. Turn it up again. Years ago in Mashamba, I was staying in Mashamba before I married my wife, and I stayed in the church in Mashamba, Bible Baptist Church, and we heard that there was no electricity in the village of Mashamba in 2004. And when I stayed there, the, the man who owned the bottle store paid extra money to ESCOM to have them bring electricity just to his bottle store. So guess what he did with the electricity at night? He played very loud music. So I'm staying at the church and it's past 10 or 11 and it's so loud. I pace off the steps from the church. It's over 300 steps from the church to the bottle store. Large steps, not little baby steps. And you can still hear the music very loudly. And I thought to myself, I'm going to go in here and tell these people that it'd be better if they just turned it down. So I walked into the bar and then they see the white guy coming because only this place has lights. There's no lights in the rest of the village. Electricity hadn't gotten there yet. So they had the lights and the sound there and then lots of people are there drinking. And as they see me walk, oh, the white guy's here. What's he want? What's he want? I walked up and I greeted them nicely. I put my hands together, kind of bend my shoulders, lean over to be respectful. Hey, good evening. Could you just hungutanyana, turn it down a little Ha! Ah, ah. Ha! They begin to shout. Ah, wait up. Get out of here. They told me, first time I heard the word, futseka. So I try to turn it down, turn it down. So they won't turn it down. So I walk back feeling I at least did my duty to try to make society better. Go back to the church with my candle and my book. 
I was reading Hudson Taylor's biography that night. And I go back to the church and lay down there. The next day or shortly after that, the village elders called a meeting and they asked me, they asked me to come to this meeting of all the village elders, there were about 15 of them. And they called me together and the conclusion of the meeting, they told me in English because my song was, I was only learning Tsonga, so they made sure they told me the conclusion in English. They said, so here's what you must do. Because of what you did there at the bottle store, you either have to say, you were wrong for coming to us and telling us to be quiet, or you need to say that you hate us. That, that was literally how I did it. I, I, I wish I had recorded some of these things, but this is back before cell phones were very popular. And uh, wait, wait, neither of those are true. I do love you, but you were wrong to do that thing. Very interesting. The world that we live in will make you feel stress even when you're not in physical danger. And it is emotional stress that can weigh heavily on the soul, just like physical danger can. Even if the people aren't killing you, if they are opposing you all the time, they're speaking against you, they're talking about your kids or your wife, they're making comments so that you can hear, and you know they're doing this so that I can hear. They, they oppose me, and they don't have the guts to look at my, me in the face and say, hey, I oppose you, but they'll talk about me in a way that they know I hear, or they'll somehow send me a message so that it's very clear, I don't like you, I don't like the things you're thinking about, and we have to be together, maybe at work, or at here, or at the school, or at the church, we have to be together, but I'm going to make sure that you know I'm not happy with you and I don't like you. Maybe a husband will do that to his wife. Maybe a wife will do that to her husband or children to their parents, or friends to each other, or workmates. They feel this shame. When a man cannot solve a problem, he cannot give his family the security. And when a man cannot get rid of people who are opposing him or mocking him, it is an unbearable stress. It can weigh down and overwhelm the benefits that might come from, say, a successful business. You might say, but look, I'm getting this paycheck and that's good. Yes, but I have to endure them. My father left a very good paying job when I was 13 years old and began a uh, uh, risky business. When he had three children to support because he said, I can't take the people I'm working with anymore. Can any of you relate to that? It's a great weight. What's the third difficulty here? It's not in verse three. It's back in verse one. Look back at verse one. Where is he at physically? Last line of verse one. I was in Susa, the palace. Go on the internet. Type in, how far is it from Susa to Jerusalem? Just under 1,500 kilometers. But maybe from the east side of Susa, it's over 1,500. Susa is in Iran. Jerusalem is not. It's going to be a long walk. What are you going to do when you realize there's a major problem? The people of God are under attack and I can do nothing, but my heart is there. What good does my heart do? My heart doesn't build a wall. They can walk right over my heart. They can steal and kill and destroy, and I'm stuck here. What's the problem? The problem is the Jews are in danger. They're in danger physically. They're in danger spiritually, and I can do nothing about it. This is one of the great terrors that criminals have made Afrikaners feel when they come into their farms 
and they will attack their family in their presence while they're bound. What evil, what pain, what stress. The human mind reels back, it recoils. When you say, no, no, I could take almost anything. If I'm, if I'm swinging my fists and you're killing me, at least I'm expressing my anger and hatred, hatred and rage at the evil that you're doing. But when I can do nothing, when I'm stuck here far away, what can I do? It's too much for me. My mind can't take it. My heart can't take it. My soul can't take it. This is the problem that Nehemiah has. Do you see? What he loves the most, the people of God, are under attack. And they're feeling great stress. And he is impotent. He can sit there. What else can he do? That's the problem. Now let me ask you, do you have any problems like this? Let me give you three ways that you might have problems like Nehemiah had. Three ways. Number one, you have a problem that is too big to be changed. It makes you feel hopeless. You're living with a woman and you say, she won't change. I tried to change her. She won't do it. Or a man or a child or finances. You say, you know, those guys have a good job. I do the same thing they did. In fact, I do better than they did. The only reason they have that job is the people they know or the whatever or the whatever. But there wasn't an even playing field. If we were both put at, the, put at the line and the gun sounded and they said go and we had to run, I know I'd get to the finish line before that other guy, but yet he's getting the 25000 a month and I'm getting the nothing. Look at this, it's not fair. You feel like the problem is so big that you're hopeless. Do you have a problem like that? Number two, it seems to touch everything you care about. Your family, your religion. It seems to touch your money. You have a problem that seems to be touching everything in your life. You're out of control. You're angry. You're alcohol. You're lazy. Character problem, family problem, work problem. You say, it just, it, I can't even enjoy my home at night because that, what happened at work? Number three, it seems to shake your faith in God's promises. Do you have problems or a problem or a hardship that just seems so big? It seems to touch everything. It seems it's, it's tempted you. You would never admit it. But it has actually tempted you to give up your faith. Ah, then Nehemiah was written for you. And now I want to ask you, what do you do? The entire book is built off those three verses because the rest of the book is answering the problem. He starts with a diagnosis. Here's the problem. I got a really big problem. It touches everything and I care very much about it and I can't change it. I can't fix it. And it's causing me to doubt and to wonder spiritually, what is God doing? So how does Nehemiah treat the problem? And what can you and I do to treat problems like this? What lesson could you take from this? Is this the Old Testament and you can't really do anything with it? Well, you know us at this church. We don't throw away the Old Testament. We love the Old Testament interpreted through the lens of the new. 
So we're, here we are in the new covenant. What can the new covenant tell us? Well, let's just look at the words and see what Nehemiah does. Here it is. Hardships are given to you to overcome your prayerlessness. You have a prayerless spirit, and that's the final piece of armor that Diabolos gives to the sinners so that they will never be saved. He says, I know what I'll do. I'll trap them. The final way I'll trap them so they'll never have any hope, I will give them a prayerless spirit. When we were meeting with some of the Tsonga Christians over the New Year's, we had a time of introspection, and we said at one of the meetings, what are some sins that you struggle with? And when it came my turn, I thought, you know, the sin that I need help with in 2023, prayerlessness. Is that your sin as well? Let's look at what Nehemiah did and how it affected Nehemiah. This is the second point. It's, it's there in verses 4 to 11. Let's see his prayer. Verse 4, and it came to pass when I heard these words that I sat down and wept. And mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the Lord God of heaven, for the God of heaven. Friends, this is the first of 10 prayers in the book. It's really interesting as we study this book and as you read the book, mark down every time he prays. If you have enough room in your Bible, put a little chain at the bottom like I did. I'll give you them all right now, or you can go find them yourself. Chapter 1, verses 5 through 11. Chapter 2, verse 4. Chapter 4, verse 4. Chapter 4, verse 9. Chapter 5, verse 19. Chapter 6, verse 9. Chapter 9, verse 6. Chapter 13, four times in chapter 13. Verse 14, verse 22, verse 29, verse 31. At least 10 times in the book, Nehemiah sets out to pray. I take from that that it was his habit to pray. Look down at verse 4. Chapter 1, verse 4. It came to pass when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned several days. Huh. This is a habit. He doesn't just say, wow, that's bad. He prays once and then he goes on what he's doing. It's a custom. It's a habit. It's a culture. It's a lifestyle. He keeps doing this. And as you read the rest of the book, every time he comes to a problem, he goes to pray. When he finds out the walls are destroyed, he prays. Later on in chapter 2, the king wants to talk to him, so he immediately prays. Later on, when enemies come, he prays. Every time there's an issue, the first thing Nehemiah does is goes to prayer. Notice the second mark of his prayer life. He's committed. It says he fasts, he weeps. There's a commitment there. Giving up food is a statement of devotion, right? Because to what are you devoted more than to food? Be honest about it. Is there anything really that you're more devoted to than food? I hope God. I hope your wife and children. But if we were honest about it, what do we think about more than anything else? Fasting says, that thing that is so dear to me that I actually have to have or I die I'll give it up. We can't give up breathing because we would die before we finished our prayer. Sometimes they even fast by not drinking. 
Nehemiah fasts and prays. He commits himself. He says, I am more concerned about this matter than I am about my own health or comfort. This is such a big problem. It will consume my life and I can't even eat nicely because of it. Daniel fasts when he finds the same thing out earlier on. While the children of Israel were in captivity, Daniel 9 verse 3, he fasted. Later on, we find out he fasted for three weeks as an old man. What do old men do when they fast for three weeks? They get really sick. But Daniel said, I'm more concerned about this spiritual problem than I am about my own health or safety or even my survival. These problems had overwhelmed his soul. C.S. Lewis said in his book, The Weight of Glory, our problem is not that we love too much, but that we don't love at all. Our loves are so petty. That's a good way to say it. Notice number three, Nehemiah pleads, P-L-E-A-D, plead. Plead is to beg, to entreat, to beseech, to urge, to arrange your words in any way so that the heart of the other person will be touched. Very interesting. In verse four, where do I see pleading? What words tell me that Nehemiah was pleading? What is it? Okay, pray before the God of heaven. What about weeping? Mourning? Look down at verse 5. I beseech you, O Lord God. I beg you. He uses the word beg. What about in verse 5, the word O? What does the word O mean? Look at verse 5. O. Do you say, O Amy, when you're just talking? O Amy, can we eat at 5 o'clock? Oh, Amy, I'd like to sing another song. What does the word oh mean? It is an expression of the soul and the heart going out. And he says it twice. Down again in verse 11. Oh, Lord, remember the Holy Spirit inspired every word. Jesus says every letter, the jot and the tittle, even the little marks of every letter is inspired. So when there's an oh, it's by divine design. The Spirit wanted that O to be there, and he wants you to see the O and learn something from the O. And what he wants you to learn from the O is that there is a pleading, there's a heart commitment, there is an urging, there is a, oh, I don't even know the right words to say, but hear me somehow, at least when I say, oh, listen to me. He pours out his heart and his soul before God. There's repetition in verses 6 and 11. What does repetition mean? In verse 6, let your ear now be attentive and your eye be open. Verse 11, oh, I beseech you, let your ear be attentive. Let, your, uh, let the prayer of your servant and let the prayer of your servants. Why does he repeat? Because there's something in repetition. Have you ever talked to a woman, maybe your mother, when she wanted something, maybe she couldn't even say it the right way and she kept saying the same thing over and over? She was trying to say in the best way she knew how, I really want this thing and everything in me wants that. And I don't know how to do it any other way than keep saying it until I get it. One of the remarkable things I noticed about the communication of Tsonga women when we lived in Makungele was that sometimes we would hear women come outside and they would stand outside and shout at people with whom they disagreed. One night while we were eating dinner, we heard a woman come outside and stand outside our gate 
and shout over and over at us, repeating the same things over and over. She was angry that we had called the police on a boy who was a bad, bad boy. Another time on the same bad boy who had broken into our home and stolen and we had called the police, another blind woman sat outside our fence and repeated the same things over and over. Now she was wrong because the boy had broken the law and threatened my wife, stolen our stuff actually many times. But what was she saying when she repeated? She was saying, my whole heart and my whole soul, however distracted and confused and controlled by Satan they may be, my whole heart and soul are into this thing. If she can do that for a satanic cause, what can we do for the biblical, godly, God-honoring cause? Number four, he's humble. Notice that he takes the blame. Verse six, let your ear now be attentive, your eyes open, that you may hear the prayer of your servant. Who is Nehemiah? I'm just a servant. I pray before you now day and night for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which who has sinned in verse 6? What's the word? Who has sinned? Two letters. We. Verse 6. We have sinned. He includes himself with the sinners. And then he goes further and not just we, but I, my father's house of sin. Verse seven, we have dealt how corruptly? Very. Not just corrupt. I didn't just sin, I sinned greatly. He wants to make sure that he does not soften his own guilt. I dealt with someone this week who has stolen and lied. And yet... On their status, they put up, these other people are bad. When my son wrote this man, he said, really? Should you really be talking that way? Oh, he defended firmly how bad these other people are. He is still a church member, and unless he repents, he will not be much longer. So I called him and said, why aren't you saying, I've done these bad things? Did you do this bad thing? This stealing, this lying? Did you do this? Yes, I did it. No, honestly, did you do this or you not? Yes, I did it. Then why are you, who hasn't repented of these sins, picking on these other things? Shouldn't you first be saying, me, me, me. Oh, put a hand over my mouth. Let, me not, let not one word come out of my mouth unless it's me sinning before God. Should that not be your attitude? Nehemiah gets it. He's humble. He's like Ezra back in Ezra 9 or Daniel in Daniel chapter 9. Question, when we pray, must we confess our sins? Yes, Psalm 66, 18. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. In fact, the biblical authors commonly take much longer in confession and a very short time in making their requests. I wonder if we might be answered more often and more quickly if we spent 75% of our time humbling ourselves and searching our hearts for our sin and then a very small amount of time saying, this is the thing I need and want. Will you please give it to me? 
Let me ask you, when we pray, must we take blame for other people's sins? This is common, very common. People here like to say, the Afrikaners are to blame for all the problems, and the Afrikaners today should be chanting mea culpa because of the terrible sins of apartheid. And Americans should be paying black people today because of the sin of slavery. Should we today take blame for other people's sins? Yes. If you did it yourself and still do it right now. Nehemiah says, I and my father's house have sinned. If you really did that, Nehemiah, then go and confess it. Number two, yes, you should take blame for the sins of the past if you are praying as a leader or a representative of that group. If you are praying for good things for that group, if you are saying, oh God, please give good things to this group, but yet you are not acknowledging the sins of that group, maybe you should start with confessing that group's sins. But the way it stands now, what is commonly called for is we want white Afrikaans speaking South Africans to confess the sins of other white South Africans. But I don't know if maybe they're there. If they are, I don't know who they are. I don't really have fellowship. Who is standing up praying, oh God, bless the whites? I want to see God saving sinners everywhere. Oh, God saves sinners. What American is saying, oh, God, bless the white Americans? Well, maybe if you wanted God to bless the white Americans, then you'd pray, God, please forgive the white Americans for the white American sins. And if you want to pray that way, I don't see any biblical warrant today for breaking down and praying that way, except as we may Pray, oh God, send revival and saving grace to all the people groups of the world. But in that sense, you are interceding and you are not standing up as a leader or representative of that group. So no, if you are in a group like you are a white South African or a white American or a Shona, should the Shonas have to confess the sin of murdering the Ndebeles? We never hear about that. Don't talk to me. Mr. Shona man, unless you repent of all the sins of the Shonas for slaughtering 30,000 Ndebeles in 1983. You didn't even know they did it. How many Shonas today know that, the, that Mugabe and the other Shonas murdered 30,000 Ndebeles in 1983? How many Zulus today are confessing the sins of killing a million or more of the Ndebeles in South Africa in the early 1800s? We never hear this. Zulus shouldn't pray unless they first confess the sins of murdering the Ndebeles. It's a bunch of political rubbish. Uh, th that is, this modern talk about Afrikaners need to confess the sin of apartheid and Americans need to confess the sin of slavery. No. If you're in a group, but not representing that group or pleading for that group, you're not bound to confess that group's sins. But a pastor may rightly confess the sins of his church if he knows there are sins in that church and if he is interceding for them. A father may, like Job, confess the sins of his children if he knows that his children have sinned and if he is praying for his children. As a pastor and a father, perhaps better leadership could have avoided the problems 
Well, our time is out. But let me close with some directions for facing hardships with prayer. Let me give you here quickly. Oh, I've got several of them. Let me just give you what I can find in time. How can we do it? How can we face hardships with prayer? You will need a union with Christ if you want to find any real hope in prayer. You listen to me. If you are not a member in the church or if you are not confident, if you do not have assurance of your salvation and you say, I've got this problem in my life and this is a good message. Now today I'm going to go and pray. Good, you should pray. But I want you to know this. Your prayers cannot and will not be answered unless you have a union with Christ. You see, access to God is one of the family benefits. It doesn't go to goats. He only gives access to God if you're a family member. If you're not a family member, you get no access. You don't have the key. You can't pray in Jesus' name because when you say in Jesus' name, he actually marks it down as one more of your blasphemous sins against him. Well, I prayed in Jesus' name. No, you didn't. You, in his eyes, cursed him in Jesus' name for pretending to believe in him and submit to him and love him and trust in him when in reality you still stand as a rebel holding up your guns to attack him and kill him. Do not think that he, that, that man will receive anything from the Lord because you're a double-minded man. You say, oh, I'm praying. Oh, I love God. When in reality, you're not still bowing the knee to King Jesus. You are a double-minded man in the worst of all ways. And James 1.8 says, don't think for a second you'll get anything from God. He gives nothing to God. He gives nothing to people who are not in union with his son. The first tip of advice is pursue, follow after union with Christ. Many people say the words, but their prayers are never and cannot ever be heard because they have no union with him. They say in Jesus' name, but it's, it's no help. Advice number two, humble yourself by admitting your actual sins and your sinful nature. David said, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. Psalm 51 verse 17. Humble yourself and spend time in humility and in confession if you would have answers to prayer. Number three, order your requests so that you can be sure God will hear you. Arrange your requests the way Nehemiah did. That, that was my point that I, I cut off here, but Nehemiah arranged his requests Job did that in Job 23, verse 4. Jesus tells us to do that. Matthew 6, number 4, finally. If you are sure that your prayer is for God's glory, then go on in prayer until you are answered. Chapter 2, verse 1 in Nehemiah says, four months after he began praying, that he had a chance to speak to the king. And chapter 2, verse 4, he goes on praying. So he went on day and night praying for four months. Brothers and sisters, when you have a hardship, go to God in prayer. Pray biblically following Nehemiah's pattern. And don't stop until he answers you. That's what it means in 1 Thessalonians 5.17 when Paul says pray without ceasing. It doesn't mean pray all the time. It means find a biblical request and continue to pray it day after day and month after month until God answers your prayers. Oh, Father, help us. Fill us with your spirit. Give us the word of God, not only in our hands, in our eyes, but into our hearts, that we may be godly men and women. Save us from our sins and grant that we may lead others into the path of godliness and righteousness and wisdom. We pray today in Jesus' name. Amen.